Hello and welcome to the New Persian Times, a platform created to raise awareness on all things Iran. I am your host, Andy Alem. My guest today for the sixth episode of this podcast is Dr. Yas Alizadeh, a PhD professor of Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies and Persian Program Coordinator from New York University, NYU. Dr. Alizadeh and I met each other at a Woman Life Freedom protest in New York City. Her knowledge on the geopolitical landscape that has shaped Iran to where it is today was incredibly insightful during our brief encounter. So I decided to welcome her to this new show I created where we could dive deeper into the complex discussion that is Iran. In this episode, we discuss a range of topics from the 2016 U.S. elections to the influence on Iran lobbying efforts in the United States and much more. This conversation was recorded 11 months ago on February 24th, 2023, just a few short days after I was rushed to the hospital for an emergency surgery. The emotional and spiritual toll was too much for my physical body to handle, for which I'm still recovering from if I'm being honest. However, since the recording of this episode, there have been many events in Iran that I unfortunately have not been able to cover, including a recent execution by the Islamic Republic of Iran for a protester who was out on the streets expressing his right to freedom. His name was Muhammad Qutbatlu. I do not claim to be a journalist or an activist, but simply a man trying to heal a severed connection between two parts of this planet. Or perhaps I'm trying to heal two parts of my soul because I am a first-generation Iranian-American and the relations between the two countries throughout my entire life have always been at odds with each other. So I welcome you all who are open-minded and above all, open-hearted. With passion and with curiosity, we can move forward together towards a bright future. I love you all. So we're going back to 2016, the Hillary Trump election. I was very much like you. I didn't vote for Trump the first time because, again, he was a wild card. At the time, because we were so conditioned to realize what presidency should be, he just seemed so unhinged. And I realized someone so unhinged should not have access to nuclear codes. Simple as that. So I voted Hillary. But it wasn't until afterwards, every day, Democratic agenda would sound the alarm as if Trump is going to destroy and end the world, right? Because there was a lot of media backlash towards Trump. I mean, every single day, every newspaper was attacking this guy, sounding the alarm. He's the worst thing to ever came out of politics. And then you realize they say the world is going to end, and it didn't. It actually got a little better. I was like, when he said some stuff. It was a lot of nonsense, but in the middle of that nonsense, he was saying some truths, some valid truths. And I was like, wow, okay. And I realized, okay, second term, I did vote for him. I was like, okay, maybe he can prevent us from World War III. That's the job of every president. 
getting us out of World War Three. And then you were mentioning with with Biden, it was it was sort of like the case. So was was that your rationale? Um, I wasn't I wasn't really thinking of World War Three, but my focus was Iran. Yeah, that's who. That's who. Not in good conscience, vote for a president whom I knew would be supporting the Islamic regime that's ruling Iran. And yeah. he did. So when Biden came, first week, right, executive order, went back to JCPOA. I, I knew that I had done the right thing not to vote for Biden. Mm. Uh, I was an independent, and then it was, it was, and I realized I, I can't do this anymore. I cannot just be this uh, watching um, Democrats be so insensitive to human rights in Iran and pretend mm-hmm. that um, or they don't they, they not care, not just pretending that they don't care, but they don't mm-hmm. they really don't care. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I voted Trump the second term, the first term. I voted Hillary Clinton. It was the first time I was voting as an as an American citizen. I took my daughter with me to the voting station and I said, I'm voting for uh, Hillary Clinton. I actually cried when Trump won. Yeah, yeah, my mother did. Too. wanted Hillary to win, despite the fact that Obama had done yeah. the Green Movement in Iran. And people on the streets of Iran would chant Obama, Obama, Ba'unai, Obama. And Obama, yeah. are you with them or are you with us? And Obama decided that he was with the Khamenei and the regime. And so, I, yeah. Yeah, I think I think that was a real wake up call. It really shattered the illusion that okay, because he was the first black president, he, we 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 all had this naive hope that he was going to be okay, our salvation, our savior. Like he might actually get us out of this Islamic the, the dealings with the Islamic Republic. But his actions really spoke volumes. And even now that that you saw that interview where he oh. looked back and he said that we regret not staying with the people, and yet his vice president is making the same mistake. Yeah, it's yeah. like what so so my question to you is well, what do you think is driving the democratic ideology to do dealings with this with this regime is there an ideology is it just something that that they're used to doing is it because that the people don't have the power because like america is the largest arms dealer in the entire world there's nothing stopping them from really just giving guns to the people and having them balance the power out because if the people had guns, they could fight back against this regime, but they don't. So my question to you is, what do you think is driving the democratic agenda towards these dealings with this Islamic Republic? That's such a good question, because that's really the million dollar question. Why are they doing this? Why do they not care about the people in yeah. Iran? And what is it that's so luring about this regime that they want to kind of uh, send it more money and uh be their friend and you know all these deals that they want to make but i think in general i've realized throughout the years that um democrats are um first of all the democratic party is is this is not a cliche it's run by the extreme left yeah the radical left yeah absolutely. The radical left. so it's it's they're they're younger and they're more interesting and so the and the young people in the united states the majority of them are i would argue democrats and leftists yeah uh, and so it's uh it's good for the party to be closer to the extreme left or the far left than just stay in the middle and be closer to kind of a conservative Democrat. So they're not. They really are uh, going to the left. And uh, and th- they have their ideology. I think they are what you can call 
political realists. And political realism really doesn't care about what happens within the borders of a country. Mm. If they're hanging their people, if they're torturing, if they're raping, political realism in world arena cares about what that country does um, as a unit to the outside world, mm. and they want to contain it. So, and that's that's scary to think that they don't really look at Iran as a as a, a country that has eighty million people mm. living and suffering. They really look at it as one, as a unit that mm. needs to be contained, that needs to be dealt with. So that's where they come from. Uh, it's um, their idea is political realism and for world order, which mm -hmm. they really care about. Yeah, they, they have been kind of closing their eyes on what's happening in Iran. Apart from the fact that Iran in uh, world stage has played a really bad role by sending millions of dollars to its uh, posses across the Middle East and causing so much disarray in the Middle East and really with, with, with regards to Hezbollah, with regards to Hamas, with regards to militia in Iraq and uh, Yemen, Yemen, Syria. So, so uh, but then again, I think to them, the cost of having Iran sending money to the militia in the Middle East, the cost of it is less than really dealing with Iran. I cannot uh, like people who think like that. I cannot. So that's why, so I'm kind of breaking up with Democrats. I don't think that they are very mundane terms, nice people. Yeah, so that actually reminds me of um, a theory that I've developed over time because for the longest time I was Democrat for the same false ideals that I had once believed in. The voting age in this country is 18. It's like, how can you have the cognitive development to understand, to participate in the voting of an entire country, but yet you are not capable or competent enough or responsible enough to have your first sip of alcohol? So again, that, that's, that's puzzling to me. And I realize the democratic ideology really does pander to culture, mm -hmm. film, movies, music and young people in any way to do that, right? This is why this oppressed versus oppressor narrative resonates so deeply with younger people. And this is what the Democrats engine of their the driving force of fear-based mind control is, is driving them. Because when you are a child under the age of 18, you have no legal rights. You can say that you're oppressed by your parents. You're oppressed by bullies, friends, mm -hmm. uh, teachers, <laughs> your first manager, your yeah. girlfriend, boyfriend, whoever it is, you're at the you have no economic value as a child. Right. Right. What is the messaging of all of the all of Western pretty much media is? It's like you can be whatever you like. It's like all of a sudden, like you have this dream. And then on top of that, you see these brilliant young kids coming up with great ideas that become millionaires, and they think that's normal. So like, oh, okay, there's this false sense of entitlement. So I think that's what's the driving force of, of the democratic agenda. It's no surprise that they have their, their hand in Hollywood. Like all of Hollywood is groupthink, identity politics. This is why I truly have been paying attention to Jordan Peterson for the past five years. I love his work. He speaks 
cuts right through the the nonsense really just helps people on the level of the individual to help better themselves. My question is, is that something that you might agree with? Is that fact? Or is this just something that I'm just thinking about? This has just my, been my observation. I mean, I'm oh, curious to hear what you have. Yeah, first let me say that I don't know Jordan Peterson. One of my students who happens to be probably one of the very few um, Republicans and she also follows Jordan Peterson. She said, you'll have to say, you know, okay, but I never got the chance to. I don't know who he is, but I know young people like him. What you're talking about is hegemony. So, uh, and hegemony, people think it's, it's the government that rules can start the hegemony. Nah, no one really, no intellectual, young people in general, even older people, they usually do not follow what the leader of uh, the government says. Mm -hmm. They need to kind of start to make um, a discourse, start a discourse that people will absorb and love and follow. And hegemony is what they do. So they start a discourse. It becomes discursive and they run with it and it's hegemony. Democrats are good with it because who doesn't want to be cool? And it's very cool to be a Democrat. If you're young. If you're young. If you're young. Do it as you're older. Older people who don't want to, who pretend Well, yeah, no, there, there's some, there's a lot of older, like my neighbors, they're, they're like, and they're, they're seniors and they're very much very liberal. Yeah. So this is what, this is what Jordan Peterson talks about, right? He literally says that orderly people, there's a difference between orderly people and people who are not orderly. And it's just a difference in personality, artistic people, creative people, they color outside the line, the boundaries of what normal is. It's because that's what it means to be creative. You have to be able to think outside that box. But a conservative, orderly um, person would be like, nope, this is the path on how to live life. I need to wake up this. This is the discipline. And there's no world outside of this box, which is very much the basis of our American military, right? It's like, get up. It's very orderly. There's no creativity in the military. It's just like you follow orders. This is the way. That's it. I My personal philosophy is finding a, a personal balance between that Mm-hmm. The right, the right, and left, and I feel like if any everybody else can do that, people will not be subjected to their biases of the the subconscious messaging and marketing of a certain ideology. Because I think for myself, I call out the right just as much as I call out the left, and it's funny how that pendulum swung in the past twenty years. Because when and I and I'm old enough to remember nine eleven, it was the Republicans that were the warmongers. And the Democrats were the kind of saving grace of getting us out of that mess. And sure enough, Obama and you know Biden, now they're the, the Democratic ideology and the DNC, they're the ones now beating the war drum. And the Republicans are now like being the sound and voice of reason. So it's interesting how, how that political shifts. But another question I wanted to ask you, this idea, this left-wing ideology, um, not to say that it's good or bad, but it's just it just seems like history's always played out in a way where any, any revolution that happened, like for example, our Iranian revolution in 1979, that was the basis of that ground up grassroots movement was based on a leftist ideology. Absolutely. Like I'm not wrong for thinking that, right? Like, can you explain that? Well, this this is 1970s, and 1970s was all about being a leftist, being a communist, being. Uh, for the proletariat, for the poor, for the, uh, the well, everybody needs to be for the poor, has to be for the poor, uh, aggrandizing the idea of poverty and making it look 
actually nice. And that's horrible. And that's what the left has been doing. Mm. Instead of trying to take everybody out of poverty and having a bourgeois society, right, middle class, they're kind of saying that, yeah, we're all for for the, the proletariat, for the poor. And it's like, yeah, shouldn't we all become middle class? And they hate the middle class. Why is that? Because the middle class is what beats, it's what pretty much drive, drove the Industrial Revolution and it brought prosperity in the 50s, right after the war. I mean, a strong middle class is really what drives a country. But even though now... It's... I don't believe so, because they it goes back to Marxism and the idea that there's no way, and the dialectic, that there's no way that there could be a few people living a good life unless there's a majority that is poor. Yeah. So uh, that type of, if you come from that ideology and believe that if if you have a group of people that are living a good life, there's definitely a majority that has to kind of suffer in order for that uh, minority to have a good life. If you come from that type of uh, view and worldview, then everything you see in, is in that worldview. And um, yes, it's true that our authors, intellectuals, poets uh, before the, the 1979 revolution in the 50s and 60s, not so much 50s, but definitely 60s and 70s, Iran, where, uh, where socialists were really communists. They, um, they were Fadayan Khav, they were Mujahideen, they were the writings. If you look at what they wrote, it was all about the misery that they saw around them without thinking, okay, so if we have poverty in the villages of Iran, how are we going to solve this, right? And that's not what they were after. They were just thinking, there is poverty, there is misery, there is um, uh, illiteracy. Instead of putting their minds into, okay, let's solve this issue, let's solve this problem. And that's basically where um, I I would argue the left has always come from. It's like we hate what we see and we're not going to give a solution other than annihilation of the system. So they're basically anarchists in my view. And uh, the 1979 revolution was ultimate anarchy. That, so, so you touched on a very good point. And then going back to what you were saying of, well, about Jordan Peterson and why he resonates with with people. And this is what... I intuitively always knew, but he had articulated it very well. Basically, he was saying that anyone who is suffering in their life, look at the rich, you look at them with a the view of resentment, like they have something I don't. And it's that resentment that's that driving force that's that drives them to dismantle the system that propagated their, their wealth and realize okay everybody should be equal it's a it's a and that's something that, that he even admits that the left does right it calls out the errors in the system but their solution is the wrong one right and and that's what resonates with so many people when jordan peterson talks about that he articulates this in such a beautiful way and basically the driving force isn't so much um the solution to your resentment is power at least that's the world view of the left it's like okay I'm resentful of you. The only way to get even is by oppressing the oppressors, mm -hmm. right? And it's this vicious cycle that goes on. Where really, that's not that. That's you're you're just adding fuel to the fire. You're not solving anything. And there's um so so that's that. And 
And so that's the answering your previous question, why do Democrats uh, you know, do nothing about Iran? It's exactly that, because Iran has presented itself as the only anti-imperialist regime in the Middle East. And so for for the past 43 years, it was, you know, that idea of, okay, we're going to forgive what they're doing in Iran, but hey, they are this force that is against uh, the oppressor, and the oppressor being the United States, the bad side of the United States, or the colonialist Europe, or whatnot. Yeah. So they have forgiven, they've literally forgiven. So uh, an interesting uh, thing that I want to mention is that one of my students uh, in the early days of Mahsa or um, the revolution or the GNR revolution, uh, we were we were talking and said, I just want to apologize. Now I know what you were talking about. Because for mm. a long time, this idea of, uh, well, laissez faire, as we say, as they say in French, it's like, let it be. Oh, they make their women wear hijab even if they don't want to. Well, that's that's their culture. Do they do this? Well, that's the culture. Let's be respectful of that culture. That actually follows the same idea of looking at uh, the the oppressor being the United States and anti-imperialist and trying to make democracies around the world in quotation marks or trying to make uh, the people of uh, the Middle East uh, civilized the way it has civilization. And that's absolutely a no-no. There's no middle ground. So we're going to let Taliban do what Taliban does to, to uh, Afghans. We're going to let the Islamic Republic of Iran do what it, the Islamic Republic of Iran wants to do to the people of Iran. And then we call it the culture. In other words, the culture of the regimes in that part of the world is represented or misrepresented as the culture of the people. We're going to let it be because we like uh, that those, they are at the end of the day leftists, right? Whoever stands against um, America in general, against American hegemony is supposed to be leftist. Why? Because that means that those people are closer to the communist ideas of the old Soviet Union, of mm -hmm the old China, not the new China, that is basically horrendously hyper-capitalist, but all that. So that's that's where that's where we are suddenly. And uh, it's 43 years and suddenly the, the world seems to, the West seems to realize, oh, there is a new one where people are suffering. Yeah, it's been 43 years. I think they know. They always knew. I always feel like they knew. They just didn't have the backbone to stand up for it. This is one of the things that I respected about Trump is that, like, he got attacked viciously left and right, but he stood his ground. Yeah. Him, I love him. Yeah. The guy has a backbone. And I think one of, that's one of the admirable qualities that we look for in a person who we would want in a leader, someone who's powerful in a way where it, it almost goes back to the the ancient biblical story of Christ, where he was ascending to a higher power. He's the son of God trying to do the right thing, spreading the message of love and getting viciously attacked for it. And I, this is something that I've realized in our, in our community where anyone who tries to rise up or speak out or be in the public spotlight, like I have a friend who is doing so much more than I am and he's getting attacked. And this is, this is just, and it could be with any culture. It just so happens that I'm seeing it in our culture that we tend to bring down those who try to ascend and instead of being supportive, it seems to be a natural instinct, which is a flaw in the human condition to bring down those who are ascending to, let's say, a higher purpose. 
And it could be that driving force of resentment. It's because, okay, and, I, and I've had my fair share of haters. They look at me, I'm out, I'm, ha- I'm enjoying my life. I'm actually happy. I'm at peace. Have a good time. I can do both. I'm competent. And I have a few haters pointing fingers at me too. And this is a problem in our culture. And it, is it a cultural thing or is it a flaw in the human condition? Or like, I, I guess, I don't know. It's just something that I've noticed and observed. And I'm sure it's it's a driving force in our politics because you have these uh, Democrats in power who are stand who, who are on the opposite side of the table with these mullahs, and they're they're literally cowering to them. It's because they don't have a backbone to say no, you're you're wrong. You As know? Uh, they have actually asked um, England to not put IRGC on the terrorist list. Uh, the uh, radio and TV, state radio and TV in Iran was on the terrorist list, but they are not renewing it. America said we're stopping it. Mm-hmm. So uh, this administration has done really awful things to the Iranian people. But I have to also mention this, and I said that before you started recording. I am, on the other hand, grateful for a democratic government to be in place because if it were not for Biden, who is a Democrat, I would say I doubted if uh, Iranian people, the Sejina revolution would get so much support from across the board, from Democrats and Republicans right. and from the people on the street and from young people in America. Oh, yeah. I think it's uh, that if it, if it was Trump and Trump day one, would condemn the mullahs most probably. Pompeo would go on TV and said, we support the Iranian people. Half of the people you see on the streets of New York and Washington, D.C. would not would not be there. Really? Because I, yeah, because they the hate for Republicans and the hate for Trump specifically and Trump's administration, unfortunately, including Pompeo, was, uh, was really... Um, very clear among um, uh, young people and it's um, if this revolution has a voice outside of Iran it's mostly because of those university students and the younger Iranian Americans and I doubted if they would show so much support if there was a a Republican administration right now. Very interesting very interesting. I might be wrong but I've been thinking about it and I've been grateful actually that coincidentally we have a democratic administration, and uh, yeah. they were actually the, the after Europe, after many countries in Europe, U.S. was still silent. Vice President was silent. Oprah yeah. was silent. Yeah. You know, um, Michelle Obama. Silent. Yeah. They were like, "What? Why is that?" Because they they're they're such politicized people. That's such so shameful. And but then again, still, and, and another thing that I'm grateful, if it were not for Black Lives Matter, they're all sort of mimicking Black Lives Matter. Yeah, the passion is there. Yeah. The passion, the passion that the students have shown, and I say students because the majority, I haven't seen old. I've seen older people, but I don't really know them. I know a lot of friends of mine in Connecticut. They don't go to mm. uh, rallies and demonstrations. Yeah. They don't. They want to go back to Iran. They don't want to cut that. Uh, uh, they don't want to end that opportunity. They want to go see family. Those are important to them. And uh, uh, so I think Black Lives Matter gave the the young population in America that's that's um, that they can do something. 
So there are, these are um, very interesting. These are coincidences that have helped with the, with the Iranian revolution, which actually so many people still don't consider it a revolution. They think it's just a movement. Uh, it's just a protest. It's not a revolution. I consider it a revolution. I agree. I'm with you a whole a wholeheartedly. It's 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 a revolution because I'm speaking it into existence. That's why. And and if if you don't speak it to it existence, then it won't it won't be. Um, BLM definitely provided a vision or a path for young people. Okay, this is what happened. This is what can be done. But BLM fell short. Sadly. So that that's my worry. It's like, okay, all the rallies are, are great. It makes a lot of noise, but there needs to be a follow through. Where is the rubber hitting the road? It's good to have a movement, but that movement needs a policy. And, and I hate saying this because again, this is just what I've been conditioned to hear. It's like, oh, it needs a leader. I don't believe it. I think it, it has five leaders, six leaders. Everyone's a leader in this, in my opinion. This is the beauty of what I'm seeing now. It's like we, we're all looking up to ourselves. Like I see myself as my own leader in my own way. Maybe not, no, definitely not in a way in dictating policy, but with my marketing background and messaging, I'm doing my little fair share. If everybody, each individual as a collective does something, this will this will last. This will be something because we all have a shared vision of the future. But like you, I have friends, close friends of mine who've never been to any one of them. They don't want anything to do with this stuff. They like the drama in their personal lives, but they don't want to get mixed up with this. This is above them. This is beyond them. This is, I don't know. I don't know. I, I Do I judge them a little bit? I judge yeah, them. I do too. I do judge them. And I have actually tried to kind of this minimize communicating with them. I just couldn't. I couldn't because I also have family in Iran. My brother lives in Iran. We all do. We all have, my best friends are still in Iran. My my childhood friend. Is, so I want to go back. Everybody wants, why are we doing this? And it's, it's not as if we are all sacrificial heroes that we are doing it for others. Everything mm -hmm. that we do in life, even the joy that it gives us is already our, our reward. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, being there on the streets, um, in, walking in the rallies and protesting, uh, it's part of it is because I, I love doing this and, I, and also because I love my country. That gives me uh, that gives me joy that there's selfishness in it. I, I, I will never say there isn't, but... Uh, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to. Yeah, it's much easier to divide people than yeah. bring uniting people. Absolutely, it's difficult it's, to it's, forgive people who have not lifted a finger outside of Iran, and I think that's uh, that's a shame. But then, uh, I don't know. But yeah, your your you guys on the streets of New York City, you've you've done a wonderful job. The world wouldn't have heard Iran if it were not. For, for Iranian Americans and uh, other young people, Iranian Germans, Iranian uh, Swiss, Iranian French. That's no, it, it's, it's, it's so beautiful because I grew up with my, my small community of Iranian friends, which was so great. I mean, it was during my childhood. I had a great childhood thanks to that. But as we've gotten older, I, I'll admit we've been a bit fractured. Everyone's so caught up with the bustle of their day-to-day -day life and they think that's the world we want to live in. But I realized I, after Massa died, um, I don't know what it was. I just felt this, my heart just dropped and I had this enormous empathy. 
And there's some selfishness to it too. I'm not going to lie. It was part of it, my ego, but really as a single Iranian man, mm. I kept thinking to myself, they're, they're killing these beautiful Iranian women. For all I know, they, they're, they're, they're murdering my future wife. And that's, that's literally how I thought. I structured it in my brain. I'm like, you are killing my blood. Like, I'm not married to these women at all. I have no connection to them. But there's something ethereal that's connecting me to them. At the time, my best, one of my best friends was um, his wife and his kid was, was in Iran visiting when Massa happened with all this stuff happening. And my friend was in, and he's one of my dear friends, and he was in such stress. And I thought, I don't want to see my, my, my good friend in pain. If yeah. there's anything I can do to help echo that too. So there was a myriad of things. I realized this is, this is also the latest iteration of the 20, 2009 movement. 2009, when, when Neda died, Facebook had just opened up. I had shared that video of her bleeding out in the streets. I'll never forget this. I had a girl message me saying, can you please remove that? Iranian girl, can you please remove that video? I think it's offensive, whatever. It's not right. I'm like, honey, this is what's happening in the streets. We have to be thanking God that we have social media to expose the, the, the brutality of this nonsense. And then I cowered to her and I deleted it. And I never forgave myself. So that's why I, oh, that's another reason I, I created this platform because never again am I ever going to listen to anybody that goes against how I'm feeling in my heart. This feels right. So I'm going to do it. And I don't care if I lose friends or not. I don't need friends. I really don't. So it's like, I'm good. And anything that helps, like we said before, that, that helps move, moves that needle forward. I'm I'm happy to do it. I mean, you're doing it by teaching, by educating, educating the youth. I mean, I'm sure that's a whole nother challenge in itself. I don't know how you do it. But. Well, I always tell them that what happens in our Persian class stays in Persian class. Yeah. <laughs> and I tell them that I'm brainwashing you. You better be aware. Yeah. But I have not, I have never been a very conventional Persian teacher. Uh, politics has always been there with me from day one when uh, Navid Afkari was arrested and then he was executed. I was the keynote speaker at a conference of Middle Eastern Studies language teaching part of it. And uh, despite the fact that I knew everybody would probably not be very interested in bringing politics into methodology, that's what I did. If you look at what I've published, there's always politics in it. Be it teaching Persian, mm -hmm. I actually teach Persian through political literature or literature that I consider political because I don't believe there's anything outside of politics. When you have left your country and you're displaced and you start a life, I'd never visited America before I became a resident here. And that's it's mind-boggling to think of it that way. And my mother. Most this is all of us, right? All your your parents, me, or my generation. So we are displaced. And so our whole being here, our professions are the result of our being displaced. Um, so our whole life revolves around it. If, I, I, if I've seen my father in the past, when he lived, because he died in 2019, and that's the last time I went to Iran. And mm -hmm. I said, this is scary. My brother would stay, you know, behind, right at the, where the police sees your passport. And then he would say, Yes. And I would say, yeah, okay, you could go. I They let me go. That's, I couldn't do it anymore. And then I said, you know, my dad lived the best ages from 30 to whatever during the Islamic Republic. And he died and he didn't see the end of this regime. Yeah. 
this is awful. And so during, yeah, so in one of my, one of the lectures, almost always, but in that specific one, I talked about Navidad Gori and how we could, this was at the time of Black Lives Matter movement. And I said, America seems to be very worried about social justice and equity within the borders of the United States. But when it comes to what's happening across the world in Iran, it's like, we don't care and we need to yeah. change that. And yeah. as a teacher of Persian, try to change that. And I include that in my syllabus and my curriculum, that my students are not going to just learn about how beautiful that mosque is or how wonderful the, the views and scenery of Iran is, the beautiful demo van or whatnot. They are going to learn about the people in that country and the, and the culture in Iran is right now, the culture of Navi Dafkar. Two years after that, then we had Gina Gina's revolution, and I'm grateful for the world to finally pay attention this time. They really never paid attention back then. Yeah. I mean, even if they saw, they didn't care. Yeah, which which is a huge injustice, in addition to the fact that your father passing away, not seeing the end of a regime that has displaced his family. I mean, we we all bear that trauma, which yeah. is an injustice in itself. I we, I see it as like they stole our birthright. Exactly. They exactly. stole my birthright. It, it shouldn't matter if anyone tries to shame you in a way, oh, you're doing this for ego. So what? Yeah. No, the, so because what? that's the truth. That's it's the, the truth. You're a person. You're a human being. You have every right to... I actually called it once. I called it a cultural genocide, too. And that's before they actually committed genocide. This time they committed genocide. They, they killed all the beautiful people in it. Young yeah. people that they killed, they actually targeted the beautiful ones and they killed it. But I called it cultural genocide before. I said, if, if I'm speaking English to my children here, Persian culture, unless I can take them to Iran, does it, it's, it has turned into a love of Gormasabzi and Qair. That's yeah. cultural genocide. Yeah. Now they're committing cultural genocide within the country, which mm -hmm. we were talking about it before you started recording. But also for us being displaced. Mm -hmm is losing uh, the, the Iranian culture that I grew up with. That my oh, yeah. That, that's cultural genocide. You just made me think of two things. My friends who haven't attended these rallies, the reason I judge them is because you enjoy your daughter parties. They can call what? Fat hangamun, fat Like, no. Our culture is so much more richer than that. Okay, who is this guy? This is a girl, oh. <laughs> and she was scratching the door, so I had to get. Okay, it's so funny on on <laughs> on my on my fourth episode, my dogs were doing the same. <laughs> and now here you are doing the same. <laughs> I love dogs. I'm a huge dog person. Yeah. It's another thing, right? The animal abuse. Oh my. Animal God. abuse in Iran, right? I mean, that's a whole nother topic of conversation in itself. I mean, like, it's not. You can't even call it a government. It's 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 corruption beyond belief. This is one of the missions in my life here and to, to create this platform to get people to see that, OK, it's not just a government of Iran. No, this is this is truly wicked evil that spawned on the depths of hell here on Earth. If, if anyone who has been putting Iran out of their mind, take a good look at the photos of these generals or these mullahs. First of all, they don't look Iranian. They don't have the as on their facial features, everything, they're hideous. They are the most disgusting people on the planet. And they look like demons who've been spawned out of the depths of hell. I mean, unbelievable. You mentioned something, a cultural genocide. 
it made me think, okay, is is another driving force of this regime to, let's say, attack Zahadan and Sarandaj? Do you think, and this is my belief, that this is an ethnic cleansing of their version of Iranian culture is that's subordinate to Arab culture? Is that even a possibility? So they have done ethnic cleansing from day one when they came to power. They started to attack Kurds and the Baluchis have the same, that this is a Shiite regime. Right, right. This is a Shiite regime with a very Shiite philosophy. And of course, at the end of the day, it's, it's an Islamist regime. So when it when it's necessary, they're going to befriend Sunnis and because they want to be this superpower of Islamism. But the, but the Kurds and the Baluchis are, are Sunni. They don't feel the affiliation that is necessary with them. And on top of that, this is not a regime that cares about Iranian-ness anyways. So Iran as a nation, from day one when Khomeini came, uh, said that we don't like the word Melat. Melat means what? Melat nation. Means a country. A nation, a country, a population. But what we care about is Ummat. Ummat is uh, an Islamic term meaning the whole Muslim population. Mm. The borders, when it comes to the borders of Iran, they don't really, well, this is this is the world order, so they have to, you have to have borders. But that's why they have Quds force in Syria, and they support Hezbollah, and they they all over the world, wherever there is um, insurgencies, Islamic insurgencies, there is the regime's money. They, the different ethnicities in Iran, from the Kurds, Turks, Baluchis, they don't, they don't really, they don't care about Iranians in general. Uh, they care about uh, Islam and exporting it. So if that's the case, why do they live in Iran? Why don't they move to Saudi Arabia, which was the birthplace of Islam? I don't think that they they don't want to ever kind of capture the countries across. They they have such influence in but Iran. They're in, yeah, they're at war with each other, right? They have these yeah. proxy wars between Saudi, Iran Arabia and Saudi Arabia. Is very Exactly. Saudi Arabia is very powerful, but they have tried to kind of send money and empower Houthis. Who are Houthis, do you think? Houthis are yeah. a group that in Yemen that Iran supports. So right. if they cannot really capture a country, but they can actually keep other countries back from having peace or enjoying a peaceful life, I consider Iran major player in the lack of peace between Israel and Palestine. If it were not for the Iranian regime, there would have been peace in the Middle East a long time ago. Well, there was, right? With, when the Shah was in power, there was relative peace in the Middle East. Not to say that it didn't have its problems, but the relationship between America, the West, Israel, and Egypt, all these other places, Iran was the, the peak country. It was the top. I mean, these countries like Dubai didn't exist, Abu Dhabi, Qatar. I mean, these were like peasant farmlands. They were nothing compared to Tehran. And now we're seeing a reverse of that. If you ever watch, the, there's a new documentary. I don't know if you've watched it or not. Hoveida, which is... Um... My, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've seen that. Yeah, he was the prime minister. My eyes have been open to the Iran wormhole. It was a great documentary. It's, such it's amazing a what he did. It is. I think it's in the fourth episode that Khal Khali, who was the chief executioner, executioner mm. of Iran at the time, he was, um, we put Hobeida in this room and it was supposed to be quote unquote a court. 
Korhoveda and he started reading from the Quran and he was and then translated to Farsi. He said, we cut your right arm and left leg and we cut your left arm and right leg and we do this and that. We do not follow Western human rights or what United Nations says. We have our own human rights. Now we watch this back then. It, I don't think many people had the chance to really see that or watch that court a session for Hoveda. But it's so eye-opening that this regime from day one had this genocidal, maniacal, killing, love of murdering people. And they did it from day one. Yeah. They find Islamic rules and laws and justifications for it so that other countries are quiet about it. Well, that's their cultures. That's how they kill. That's how they murder. They chop hands. And they did actually a couple of years ago, they did chop right and left in my hometown of Masha. Oh so my God. Then there's Iran lobby that is saying that, well, despite all that, we're going to kind of negotiate with them trying to cry wolf that this regime wants to make nuclear bomb. This regime can never make nuclear bomb. It has that kind of winning card or winning the whole this idea of excuse that we are going to make nuclear. This regime is never capable of make, making nuclear bombs. Well, I read recently that they're now enriching uranium. I mean, it was from a legitimate source. These lobbying groups, it's almost like their mission is to water down the brutality yeah, to, exactly. to, to, to the outside world. And now with this docu Hoveda documentary, we're getting an inside look on this stuff. And I feel like over time, we're, we're going to be more and more exposed to the tactics and the despicable, horrendous tactics of this regime. And we're finally going to open up to the realities of what it is. Well, Andy, this regime knows that if it makes nuclear bomb, that's the last day that they are in power. This is not something that they, they know the day that they are even close to having a nuclear nuclear bomb, they're going to be bombed. So they're never going to have the... Oh, for sure. It's, it's, they, this is just, uh, they, they know it and the and Iran lobby knows it. Iran lobby has been crying wolf for the past since 2002 saying that the Republicans want to attack Iran and want to start a war. And year in and now they've been saying that Iran is making a nuclear bomb. We have to contain it. And right. otherwise, there's going to be war in the Middle East. They've been saying it since 2002 that there's going to be war against Iran. And we're here and... 23 years later. Nothing. Yeah. And, and it's funny, they call themselves a lobby. And in their promotional videos, there's who is there? other than Javad Zarif shaking mm -hmm. hands with American officials. Mm -hmm. What kind of lobby for Iranian people uses the Robin Trump of Iran, who was Hitler's foreign minister? Zarif is really the foreign minister that we think is very similar to Hitler's foreign minister. Who yeah. uses him in a promotional video that mm -hmm. is supposed to be supporting Iranian people? I mean, uh, no, I don't think Iran will ever make a nuclear bomb. They know this is the end of them if they do. And mm -hmm. by Iran, I mean the Iranian regime. Right. Uh, but it has been such a great excuse for many years to keep uh, the West shut up about um, the atrocities that they're committing in Iran. Iran lobbying group, you think it's, it's really to antagonize the, not just the West, but they cozy up with, uh, which, like, obviously with like, the left-wing, left-wing exactly. Democrats. Yeah. 
and then they attack the right-wing conservatives. Is it because the Democrats are more naive enough to believe that they're more manipulatable? Why go that way as opposed to going the cozying up with Republicans and vilifying Democrats? Well, I have to tell you this. Uh, the heads of most Iran lobby groups come from a Republican background. When they introduce themselves, they've been students of Fukuyama, who was famously a neocon. And then they move. So after their ideas were in the beginning, mm. very interestingly, they've been interns of Republicans. Then they move to the Democrats because it serves their purpose. I, I don't want to say Democrats are kind of simple and so they're gullible. I think that's, I don't want to give them the privilege to say that, oh, they're so nice and they're so naive. No, they also have their own agendas. Of course. It's very interesting that uh, even the idea of racism has been, if you're a Democrat, you're supposedly not a racist. If you're a Republican, you're a racist. And when it comes to Iran and the way even Hoveida says in his court session, don't think for a second that any of these Western countries cares about Don't think for a second that they care about the Iranian beautiful Persian eye. They don't care at all about Iranians. What they care about is their own country and what benefits them. So it's very interesting that kind of this idea that Democrats are nicer people, so they are more nonchalant about what's happening in Iran versus Republicans are hawkish, so they want regime change. Um, if I want regime change and Republicans want regime change, then I'm all the way up with Republicans. And if Democrats wants to join this humanitarian ride, they're welcome to do it, but they haven't shown any interest. I mean, the uh, I don't think the military industrial complex will allow that. At the end of the day, the one bipartisan policy would be beating the war drum because we do have a military industrial complex. Eisenhower had mentioned his concern in 59. You see this conversation being had in a lot of podcasts now about this military industrial complex mm -hmm. and how it really has been the sole purpose is to create arms because it's good for business. You got military bases all throughout the world. It's easy to vilify the West because of that. I think it's scary if it's both either Republican and Democrat. But right now, the pendulum of sanity is swinging on the Republicans' favor. If they were smart, they would be able to utilize it, capture it, and be a driving force for good. And American has an opportunity to become the heroes like they once were in World War II. Yeah. I mean, I wish I could speak to American politician and give them a real look of what is going on. And if you're going to go to war, do it with the righteous cause, because it seems like war is going, it's, it's inevitable, because this, this generation of the Islamic Republic is phasing out. There was a podcast with, I think, I forget his name, Peter Zeal. He was on Joe Rogan. He was a um, geopolitical analyst. And basically, he was talking about China and how this generation of Chinese government is phasing out. And so much of the policies that they're doing now is really like their last resort. It's like they're going to die on the hill of nationalism. And it's like they're going to die. They know it. And I feel that this Islamic regime is is doing the same thing. This is the last, because the, the generation is, it, it's like in the light, it's, they're, they're phasing out. And everything that happened is happening for a real reason. And it's the fact that it's expected to happen. It's no surprise to me that once Queen Elizabeth died, that people mustered up the courage to actually get up on the street because somehow in the deep seeds of Iranian psyche, we feel that 
British has like some sort of power hold on Iran. I mean, it, all of these things sort of make sense and not, not to sound like a conspiracy theorist because I hate conspiracy theories, but you just, you look at these patterns and it makes sense. Yeah. And these are not conspiracy theories. If you look at the history of Iran during World War One and World War Two, and you will see how without any permission or any concern or hesitation, they, uh, they would bring their armies into Iran. They would pass through Iran free for all. Uh, the Iranian people are on the verge of starvation in both wars because of these foreign armies that would come into Iran and pass through Iran as if this is not a nation, as if it doesn't have any borders. So, um, and um, so history shows us that uh, Western powers have never really had uh, the, uh, the best of Iran in their minds. They have been for their own benefits and whatnot. But the problem is, that the way they have done it, I see racism in it. It's not yeah. just politics. Oh, yeah. It's, you know, okay, so Germany and America, World War II is based on racism and based on what Germany did to the Jewish people around the world. But World War One, World War II, other than the, the, the main idea of Jewish people, was not the thinking that America thinks that it's better than Germans. But when it comes to Iran, to this day, there is that sense of racism. There yeah. is that idea that you are people of the Middle East. Your brains are smaller than ours. You don't think as well as we do. Uh, and so really what's happening in Iran is none of our business. Yeah, you're third class citizens. Yeah, yeah you're second class citizens. Uh, that really bothers me because terms of geopolitics and every country being for the benefit of their own people, maybe it's understandable, but the idea of approaching it through the lens of, uh, hush, hush, you don't really understand that much. You don't really get it. You are of lesser value for because you're not, because you're Iranians, because you're in the Middle East, because you are. We don't really know what you are. Yeah. That exists. It does exist. And I think that, I think one of the reasons, just to prove your point, I mean, you, you, we go to Dubai, right? Like we just mentioned, Dubai was was nothing like 20 years ago. The Iranians that are in Dubai now, they are met with, they are third-class citizens. Yeah. Like the way we, the way Americans view Mexicans here, yeah. uh, there is no respect for Iranian culture for nothing. And one of the reasons why I always try to present myself in the best light is to try to change that image. That's why I always try to ascend to higher purpose or a higher value. It's because, no, we are not what your ignorant mind allows you to think. Yeah. I got bullied in high school because of that. I'm sure it was a reason. And now a lot of those kids who really didn't look at twice at me, they see my life on Instagram. And they're like, whoa, like, well, who is this kid? You really came up. It's like, well, no, like I always was good. I think it pissed off the the Western powers when the Shah of Iran said, now the, the brown eyed people are telling the blue eyed people what's up, which I think was so cool. But at the time that I'm sure that that pissed them off and like, oh, okay, you saying that? Okay, we put you in power. We're going to bring you down. And that's what it was a self-fulfilling prophecy in that sense. Like he kind of, I think he shouldn't have said that, play the cards right. But at the time, you're the Shah of Iran and you have all this gold and wealth and power and 
Like you're not thinking about being... He had had enough of it, and you're right, he shouldn't have said that. But even if you look at the interviews that was made by 60 Minutes, what's his name, I forget. The the way they talked to the Shah of Iran. Oh, so, it was very belittling. Oh, so belittling. It was and very belittling, yeah. Not that, like, talking to the king of the country. They're so belittling. And even if I go back to the Hoveda documentary, there is, uh, I think it's, again, it's in episode four, where a French journalist, a female French journalist, goes to Iran and goes to his jail and starts talking to him. And she is so belittling. And as if she is the prosecutor and the questions that she asks him. And I think at that time, Hoveda, he's very fluent in French. At that time, when he's looking at this woman, I think the idea that this is really it, this is really happening. She is looking at me as a lesser, a lesser person. Lesser person. This has always been there. Um, yeah. Uh, and of course, 43 years of tyranny and Islamism really not only didn't help, but took us to the bottom of the... Yeah, no, it definitely didn't help. One last thing I know, I know it's been, we're going to wrap up a little bit. I just want to get your last thoughts, because I could talk to you for like hours. I love this conversation. Yeah, the, and, and I love how we both match wearing white. This was not planned. <laughs> I wanted to get your thoughts on Mujahideen. Huh? Okay. It seems like they are an alternative... Islamist faction. Who are they? What What's their agenda? Why do they even have a following? To me, they're just such a big question mark. I think I've personally been on the receiving end of their attacks, but disguised and masqueraded as people who support the Shah. It, it's, it's a very suspicious tactics that, I don't know, I just immediately got the feeling, like, all right, this is either the regime or MEK, can you just like talk to me a little bit about educate me about who they are, what's their purpose, what's their ideology, what are their driving forces, and why why do they even have a following, and why is it that American politics value them as second in command to this regime as you know, as an alternative? I I don't think American because I know a bunch of Republicans have been inviting them, talking to them. They're not. They're not. This is a clan. This is a cult. And they're not going to rule Iran. I'm not worried about them. Iranians who know them are not worried about them. And America, I think there's this idea of they don't know what to do. So they're actually holding on to them. But no, zero, zilch, no worries. I'm not worried about it. Uh, okay, so I go back to where they come from. They are the later phase of the leftist Iranians before the revolution. So we had the communists, we had the two dead, the communists who were directly supported by the Soviet Union. And then we had communists who were more independent. We call them Fadayan Khaf, and we had Mujahideen, which were the Islamist communists. Mm. So they mix the idea of uh, Marxism with the ideas of Shiism. And they called uh, Dr. Ali Shariati as the father. And he was a professor in Iran from my hometown of Mashhad. He was this, this uh, Shiite intellectual, tried to turn this the rituals and this religion into something bigger than, than it is, a certain mm. political uh, ideology. If you read it today, you're going to be truly laughing. That's of the text I use for my students when they are in higher levels of Persian is the text of Dr. Ali Shariti to not only familiarize them with uh, the political intellectuals of before the 1970s in Iran. And I also want to know how they feel as young Iranian Americans or young Americans 
students now about a professor who said these things to students their age back then in Iran, and the reactions are really fun. It's all about blood and dying and killing and bogus things about Islam and Shiism. Anyways, but he has a lot of followers. So Mujahideen kind of emulated his ideas, and he was also kind of a leftist intellectual at the time, but very much a Muslim. So this new group was made, and they were against Shah. Uh, they had a big hand in the 1979 revolution. But gradually, you had your Islamists, you had your Mujahideen, and the Mujahideen were kind of losing this kind of battleground to the other Islamists who were the kind of very devout Shiite Islamists, the ones that are ruling Iran right now, were winning. I had quite a few cousins who were in this group, uh, two of them, but one of them, actually, my other cousin was a communist who was executed by Khomeini. But I also had a uh, Mujahid, an MEK cousin, who was executed by Khomeini. Mm. And I, my two other cousins were also in prison, were also Mujahid, were in prison during Khomeini, and I would go with my parents to visit them and in jail. They were very popular back then, uh, the early days of the revolution. Of course, I was very young, but then I knew they were very popular. They were like as popular as any leftist group. Mm -hmm. And so they were crushed, they were murdered. And then Raisi, who's the president of Iran right now, one of the biggest atrocities that he has ever committed is that he um, had thousands of them executed in the prisons of Iran. The more the Islamic Republic killed MEK, the more aggressive and cult-like they became. Mm. So at this time in Iraq um, and helping Saddam or Saddam gave them a space, they gave them a camp and they lived there. They actually attacked Iran with Saddam's force once or twice in order to be able to kind of enter the country and uh, in the eight-year Iran-Iraq war, that's one of the things they did. But they gradually turned into this really vulgar, grotesque cult with women wearing red scarves and this outfit. I have to also tell you the idea of the type of hijab that you see happening post-revolution is the result of the MEK mentality mm -hmm. and ideology, the scarf and the uniform that the Iranian women have to wear is uh, kind of a production of that MEK ideology. Wow, okay. So uh, gradually they became more caught like they committed many crimes in their camps. They mm -hmm. didn't allow marriages to happen. They didn't allow people to have children. They had to kind of send their children if they had children out of the camp. So literally a cult, a militia cult, and a terrorist cult. Mm. That's who they are. And they're, they're older, so they're 60 and up. I wouldn't worry about people yeah. in that age category. There, it's not a huge population. Um, and uh, actually, I met a few of them in the, the first rally that we did demonstration that was Raisi it was in early September right after Masa Amini's death mm -hmm, if you remember mm -hmm. United Nations and yeah. they had their the, the MEK had their own uh, space right by UN and they were all wearing yellow 
if you, yeah. if you remember. I actually did not go. My my yeah. family went to that one, but I didn't go to that one. I went to the one October 1st, but I, I know which one you're talking yeah. about. So I, I talked to a bunch of them because these are older men. And I said, what the hell? Why are you all wearing yellow? What's going on? And are you Mojahed? And they would say, no, 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 we are Sampot. Sampot is an old, old term. Like it goes back to 40, 50 years ago, and it comes from sympathizer. We are sympathizers. So they still call themselves sympathizers of MEK. They don't call themselves members of MEK. Uh, many of them had come from California. Some had come from Toronto. And they were, I wouldn't worry about them. A small population. They said, why? Yeah. Said, well, we have been living like this. The answer was, and there was a bunch of them, because I. it was funny to me that people would dress the same in a rally. That's and they cool. have this Mariam Rajavi, who's like the kind of really a clown as their leader. This is like the most ridiculous, bombastic group that could ever exist in the 21st century. And then a bunch of these older men were saying, but we lived like this for many, many years. So um, no, no, there's nothing to worry about. That's 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 the least of our worries. Okay, because there's news of this Mariam, what I forget her last name. Najavi. Yeah. Najavi. And she's being, I guess, invited to speak at certain conferences to be the voice of Iranian people. And it seemed to piss a lot of people off. So again, it's something that scratched the part of my brain that I knew, obviously, she didn't represent the Iranian people at all. But it just seemed like, okay, you're you're more or less like the alt-right of the Islamic Republic. It's like, what, yeah, right. <laughs> like, what are you doing? You know, like, and how the hell do you have any following? How many more people need to, to die at the hands of, quote-unquote, in the Iranian culture for you to realize, okay, this is not the way to go. Yeah. To be invited to a conference, I just thought that was very puzzling to me. That was unfortunate. That was a Republican move, and that was a really horrible Republican move, and it wasn't the first time. Pompeo had talked in there, had been invited by them. Giuliani had been invited by them. Uh, I think they probably paid them some money to go and talk. Is it so? Is it is it because that they're just like they just appear to be organized? Or is it just not even they organized. don't know anybody else? Because like I can network really well and it would it wouldn't take me a lot of effort for me to pitch myself because I feel like I can speak on this stuff more than anyone else can. Well, not compared to you, but you know what I mean? Like, I well, actually, you, you should. We all should. We should actually yeah. start communicating with each other more and making really a community of activists, which we don't have. Nufti is right now working. I don't know if you're familiar with Nufti. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard of them, yeah. It's they have a beautiful art gallery in D.C., beautiful. Yeah, it's small. They're not as active, but they're not as powerful. But it's their kind of go head-to-head -head with Nayak. They're okay. like, they. that's what they are. But we don't really have that many other groups that are organized like MEK. I don't call them organized, but because they were the target of the Islamic Republic in the right. past 43 years. They seem like the opposition group. The opposition, that's, the alternative, okay. because they were the target. And the Islamic Republic gotcha. is very good at uh, targeting them because they know the more they target them, they, they look like the alternative. They but... look like the opposition group. All right, mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense. So basically, in order for us to become the, a valid opposition group in the eyes of American politics is to really be a target. 
<laughs> it's like, yeah, hey, come attack me. It's, isn't that true? That's so true. Yeah. So it seems like the enemy is targeting, you know. I mean, that's what they did with Massey, right? I mean, they they literally, they yeah. They did. They did. And not just once, but twice. And uh, because a lot of Iranian regime officials and their lackeys, their, their children are not only in the U.S., but also in Canada. Oh, yeah. They launder the money, right? Doesn't the government like launder their money, right? I think we're just past an hour. But I wanted to just kind of wrap this up real quick and just really thank you. And I really, really, really would love to just have you back again because you just seem like you have a wealth of knowledge that I just... Because I'm learning so much with you. So it's, it's, it's great. I'm learning a lot, Andy, too. And thank you so much for having me and having you and your voice here supporting the Iranian people matters so much. I want to thank you for that. It thank matters you. to me, and I'm sure it matters to the Iranians in Iran and also here. So do promote yourself. Do let uh, everybody know that you exist and you're making these podcasts. And uh, I'm sure people young people young iranian americans and older iranian americans will appreciate it it really means a lot to hear you say that thank you thank you i i I'll, i just do my small part i hope it makes a difference but we'll see i just keep doing it so it will make a difference yeah. but this was amazing because this was the first one that i was doing with an iranian american really yes this was the first time that i was actually had been invited by an iranian american to talk wow i've been invited okay. Americans and others, but it's the first time that I've been talking with an Iranian American. That matters to uh, me. Wow, good. Well, then I'll definitely keep definitely keep moving forward. Thank you. All right. All right, Yasjun. Okay, I'll you. talk to you soon. Thank you, Andy. Merci. For the office. For the office.